Hey, it is good to see you guys. I'm uh, Pastor Tim Rogers, one of the pastors here at Grace Point as well, and I want to throw my hat in the ring, welcome you as well to Grace Point Church. I'm always encouraged by our time in worship. Thank you, Jan and company, for leading us, and um, very powerful time this morning. Thank you all. Hey, um, before I get started, a couple things to tell you about. Number one, um, if you are relatively new here, um, or if you happen to forget summertime, because summertime just happened, in case we didn't know that, we finished, or trying to finish, an initiative called Together 2012. It's a partnership between um, Grace Point Church, Keystone, Peckley Valley, Paradise Township, and the factory in which we're trying to work together for the common good. Did all kinds of things this summer for that, um, all kinds of initiatives behind that. But the last thing on our to-do list, if you will, is now happening. And you heard some of that last week. I just want to report to you this morning that you'll see these pictures up here. These are pictures of groundbreaking right down the road, right here, not even a half a mile away, maybe a quarter mile away right behind the factory house. If you can see my little pointer there, this is the factory house. And right over on this side of the screen is where the, the old factory youth center is. Uh, so they are, began digging um, Wednesday at 2 o'clock or 3 o'clock. When I drove by this morning, they had the footers in and everything, and they're rolling on that project. There's our friend Amos uh, working his magic on that. So we're rolling, right? We're rolling. It's, it's happening, and we have the cash in hand to put the shell up, to put the building up, and we're going to need, um, you'll hear more about this as the time comes, but we're going to need to have one final push to finish the inside of the building, but that will come. But I just want you to know, hey, this is exciting. This is good stuff. We have this building underway, so really good stuff, yeah? All right. Very good. Now, the next thing that we do before I begin this morning is um, switching gears. We have um, something that we've done here over time in the last several um, months now has been something we call a story of grace. Story of grace is a time for us to hear from, from one another about what God has done in our lives, what he's been um, moving in us over the years. And this morning we have another opportunity to hear from someone. Um, so Ethel Hershey. Ethel, why don't you come on up here? Um, I think this will work for you, Ethel, my friend. There we go. All right, Ethel. Ethel is someone that many of you may not know, and Ethel is some of someone that many of you do know. Ethel, here we go. Let's see if that works for you. See if you feel comfortable there. Well, I don't know if you feel comfortable. There's 200 people here looking at you. Comfort might be another issue, but we're glad you're here, Ethel. Um, Ethel, I know because I have my sources, but a lot of people don't know about your background. Um, many years ago, you were what we call the county nurse. That terminology is gone now, so we don't even know what that means anymore. But can you tell us um, a little bit about why you even wanted to get into nursing and what that whole thing meant as the Lancaster County nurse? Uh, perhaps I'll go back to when I was 18, a long time ago. Uh, I was working as a nurse's aide at a local hospital, and one of the nurses said to me, Ethel, you're too young to be a nurse's aide. You, you ought to be a nurse. Well, I thought about that because, you see, I hadn't graduated from high school, I quit school at 15 to take care of my uh, sick mother who then passed away soon after. And so I didn't have a high school diploma. Well, I decided at that point if I study, I could get a GED, which I did. 
and I went to McCaskey Night School and took chemistry because I knew that was needed for nursing. I, uh, um, a couple years later, I was a student nurse at Lancaster General. I completed those three years, and then I uh, decided to go to college. And I went to college and got my uh, bachelor's degree in nursing. Uh, at that point, I decided I would work at Lancaster General. And what better job was there than being head nurse of the nurseries? I loved that. And then I taught student nurses for a while, uh, obstetrics. Uh, I did that, I was there for 10 years. And then I decided to go into public health nurse, nursing. Uh, in public health, I was working for the Pennsylvania Department of Health. And uh, so by being in, working for the public health, uh, at one of those points I was named public health director of Lancaster County, uh, a title which I don't know if I deserve, but anyway. Uh, as I was, uh, one of the things we did with the State Department of Health was we got a lot of communicable, the disease, communicable diseases had to be reported to us from the doctors. And so we would get, being in Lancaster County, you know, we have a large group of unimmunized people among the old order groups. And so therefore we were prone to getting uh, anything that came around, Lancaster County would get. Hmm. And so therefore we had a polio outbreak one year where we had a couple cases of polio. So we did a mass immunization project, immunizing a lot of people in the county. And then uh, there was swine flu threat. So we did a whole swine flu program, I think that was in 75, uh, for a disease that never happened. <laughs> but anyway. Because you did the vaccinations. Did. <laughs> <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, another thing that happened uh, in public health was we would get a lot of referrals from the hospitals on women and their children. The children were going home into unstable environments. And so they would ask us as the nurses to go out and visit these homes and do some guidance along the way. Well, that worked out well. One of the days, Dolores was sitting in my office and her little Tony, probably three years old, picked up the stapler and threw it across the room. And she looked at me with tears in her eyes and said, you know, I just wish somebody would teach me how to be a mother. She cried and I cried. I picked up a net and I went to the phone and I called our 
local mission board, and I said, you know, we have girls' homes far away. Why don't we have something in Lancaster? Uh, it took several years, fundraising, establishing a board, and going, acquiring a home. Fundraising was a big thing. And getting a program set up for mothers. But we did it. And eventually, Beth Shalom, which means House of Peace, was opened at, uh, I think it was the corner of Orange and Lime, we had a house. And people, I don't know how many girls were helped in that program. Uh, God knows. Some came and stayed, some came and left. But at whatever time they were there, I think they received a blessing. Uh, Beth Shalom is now a home for women coming out of prison. Uh, there's, um, I have some statistics. Uh, Beth Shalom is, it's now at 430 East King Street. Uh, a local couple had that house, or I don't know, they donated it. It's fixed up beautifully into apartments. Women can come out of prison and stay at that house until they get their lives back together again. Um, I just have some statistics about, since that Beth Shalom opened in 19, 2006, 30 children were reunited with their mothers, 19 women obtained permanent house, housing, 17 women, women found places of worship, and 16 women successfully graduated. If you would like more information about Beth Shalom, they have a newsletter that comes out periodically, and I would be happy to see that you get on their mailing list, because I do think it's a good program. And, and I was just amazed, a few months ago, there was a banquet in behalf of Beth Shalom, and there's a lot of local interest, which just was eager, glad to see. And uh, so we're... We're thankful for, uh, for Beth Shalom. And so if you want more information, like I said, you can help yeah. see me. This is excellent, Ethel. It's amazing to see the movement from um, someone who had not finished high school and gone through college and then get into the nursing field and see what you see and then respond to that need. And then now, years later, we look at Beth Shalom, and those of us who know Beth Shalom probably would, not, would never have known to reconnect the dots through your story and your interaction and involvement with that. So. Let's think about that big picture for a minute, Ethel. As, we, as you look back on all of your story there, um, what would you say God has taught you in this process? What would be, be, um, be something that you can say, here's, here's what I've learned about myself or about God in the process? Um, I would story? say, you know, if God tells you something to do, do it. You know, <laughs> Don't wait for somebody else. But, you know, if he puts it in your your mind, and you should do it. Uh, a song that's always meant a lot to me is, All the way my Savior leads me, what have I to ask beside? Can I doubt his tender mercies, who through life has been my guide? And I, I think I, I have a long way to go yet. I, I certainly 
you know, can't say that I know it all because I don't. But I try to live that, you know, I'll do what's pleasing to, to God. And uh, another phrase of a song, which I, people know me, I quote all the time, is from a, a Gaither song. Um, we have this moment to hold in our hands and to touch as it slips through our fingers like sand. Yesterday's gone. Tomorrow may never come. But we have this moment today. And I, I like that. But like I said, you know, I don't have all the answers because I, you know, I have a lot yet to learn. But I do try to do what I can, where I can. We don't need you to have all the answers, Alpha. We just need to see what you've done. And thank you for sharing with us. Um, a great <laughs> yeah. story. Don't go, yeah, don't go yet before welcome. I pray. Let's, let's, uh, here we go. Let's, um, let me pray here for Ethel and, and our interaction with the story. Father, thank you so much for the opportunity to hear from Ethel. Um, we're grateful for her and her courage to share her story with us this morning. Um, things we never would have known about how you have worked through a life that's been willing to be obedient to you. So I thank you so much that we have a chance um, to learn from one another in community together here. And we pray your blessing now on her as she continues to walk through this season of life. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. I love those times together. Ethel, we appreciate you and your courage. Thank you very much. And you might be next. <laughs> So it's always good to smile at those poor people who come up here because it helps everybody um, get along. Um, okay. Hey, tonight, or tonight, <laughs> tonight, I won't be here. <laughs> this morning I'm here, and as we're here gathered this morning, um, I, I want to begin by reminding us of one of perhaps the most famous feuds or conflicts in American history. And it's a conflict that is represented by these two gentlemen right up here. Some of y'all know these folks already, right? This would be the old feud of what? Hatfield and McCoy. Now, who knows what they were fighting about? Right. Nobody knows. No, no. There, there are so many theories about what they were fighting about. This is back um, when um, they, were, they were at the Tug River area that divides West Virginia and um, Kentucky, right? And on... One side you have the Hatfields, on the other side you have the McCoys, and there is kind of what generates this conflict that some believe would be a, um, a legal but controversial land acquisition, significant land acquisition of 5,000 acres of land that was acquired by the Hatfield family. Now, it was, had belonged to originally, and some believe and some don't, and this is why it's controversial, originally some think it belonged to a cousin of one of these guys uh, on your left, Devil Ants McCoy, uh, he, because they say he looked like the devil. Now, he didn't care a whole lot about that because it was his distant cousin who ended up becoming a lawyer, but over time, the Hatfields and McCoys began to develop this rivalry, and a lot of it came back to this land acquisition. One of the things that happened within that rivalry is 
the Hatfields had, uh, were in a, in a group, if you will, almost like an ancient hazing ritual, and ha- there was a McCoy boy in there, and he ended up getting stabbed, they, some say 26 times, as things turned violent, and then he was shot in the back. And after several days, as the story goes, Devil Lance McCoy said to his boys, let me know if he dies. A few days later, he dies. Devil Lance McCoy says to his posse, go out and round up the sons of Mr. Hatfield. And they do that. They bring him back. They tie him up to trees in the woods and just kill him in cold blood. That will start a rivalry if there wasn't one already. That will start a feud if there wasn't one already. And then because they were right next to each other, they're They have extended family members and friends who are working for one another and with one another. And then they have relationships, romantic relationships that begin to develop on the fringes of families with daughters being disowned and getting pregnant by the hands of the McCoys or the Hatfields and denying children and and all of what happens is this this, uh, developing feud. And then the governors of both West Virginia and Kentucky get involved in this feud that kills a dozen people, which finally ends was someone being hanged from the gallows. And the question is, what are you fighting about? What are you, what are you fighting about? You see, the Hatfield and McCoy's conflict is a classic metaphor of what happens to us over and over and over and over and over and over again. Is that when we begin fighting, when we begin this rivalry, when we begin feuding with one another, it very quickly degenerates into secondary issues becoming primary. It happens on the playgrounds all the time of any elementary school you might go to. There's a fight for a ball on the playground. The teacher comes up and tries to resolve the issue of the ball. But I'm telling you, and you know this, that, that the issue has nothing to do with the ball. It has everything to do with the selfishness of the human heart. It has everything to do with a conflict within that relationship. And the question is, why is that conflict even there? That's the primary issue. The secondary issue is, I want that ball or I want that swing or I want to go down the slide first. And here's the fun thing with secondary issues is that they're more fun to talk about than the primary issues, right? It's more fun to talk about that than it is the, the main thing. Because if I talk about the main thing, then, that, then I'm culpable, that I'm responsible actually to change something. So I don't really want to do that. I just want to keep talking about the things that make me angry rather than talking about the things that I'm responsible for. I want to talk about responsibilities, not rights. Now, if there's ever a context, a human-to-human relationship context that is perfect greenhouse to grow this feuding kind of um, environment, and that is this environment which highlights secondary issues and forgets the primary issue. If there's any kind of human-to-human relationship that functions as kind of a greenhouse to grow that, it's a relationship where you try to live with one other person in intimacy for the rest of your life. If there's any relationship that fosters this kind of secondary issue becoming primary problem, it is the relationship in which you try to live with one other person in perfect intimacy for the rest of your life. We're talking obviously about marriage. The the marriage environment provides incredible opportunities for you to remember all the times that he doesn't pick up his socks and all the times that dinner is late and all the times that the toilet paper is put on the wrong way, not over but under. Provides incredible opportunities for you to remember all kinds of secondary things that get in the way of the primary thing. 
Now, this morning, as we begin even thinking, conceiving of a, of a conversation about marriage, I want to say that this conversation is heading toward not marriage in particular, but divorce in particular, okay? We're talking about divorce this morning. Uh, last week, we talked about pornography. The week before that, we talked about anger. Today, we're talking about divorce. I'm looking for any more controversial subjects. If you'd like to send them to me, I'd be happy to discuss them next time we're together. And here's the thing that I want you to know when we think about divorce and, and marriage. Number one, if you are not married yet, not, you need to know this, 90%, about 90, over 90% of the U.S. population will marry at least once. And so if you are not married yet, and you're, you're sitting here and thinking, I've got a Sunday off, I, I want you to know that it, it, there is a high likelihood that you will be at least once. And so you, you can begin thinking even now, because this, this applies so clearly to your dating relationships and to your growth as a young man and a young woman. This applies to you. If you're, if you're single and you're a, a lifetime single, if you will, right now, that you're, you're older and you think, this is what God has called me to, this will help you understand all the problems your friends have. <laughs> It will help you in context of how you see your relationship with those who are closest to you, whether or not you're married. The principles still apply, okay? When I think about divorce, when you think about divorce, here's what this message is not. Let me tell you right now. This message is not going to be, what are, the, what are the right ways that will make divorce legal biblically, okay? In other words, this is not going to be a message in which I'm going to lay out to you all the reasons for divorce or no divorce. This is not going to be a message where I'm making a case for this, this cause, this cause, this. what about that, what about this, what about that, but hey, what about that, and what about, does God allow for this, and how about mm, that? This is not that message. This is a 30,000 foot message about divorce and marriage as a concept as, at a whole level. Okay. Secondly, when we think, whenever we talk about divorce and marriage, particularly about divorce, it impacts us so profoundly, doesn't it? Those of you who have been touched by it, you have families in it, you've been divorced, you're in the process perhaps of a divorce proceeding right now, you have daughters, sons, cousins, nephews, friends who've been divorced. It impacts all of us. That There can be a tremendous amount of guilt in the divorce conversation. There can be a tremendous sense of, boy, I didn't measure up to an ideal. I don't know of anybody who ever comes forward and stands at the altar that one day plans to be divorced. So for everybody, at some point, it's a disappointment that this happened, at the very least. But for most people, it's deeply troubling in their soul and their heart that they did not stay with the person they planned to be with for the rest of their life. And so this morning, if you feel this sense of guilt, shame, or something like that related to missing some ideal, I, I want to acknowledge that first and say that what we talk about here when we're going through this series, which is called These Words, when Jesus is giving these words, he is speaking to us in ideal terms. Okay, if, if you're feeling this morning guilt or shame, you should have been here last week. <laughs> Because we all felt that with you last week. So what, what we have said about this is that in this concept of, this, of Matthew 5, where we're at, that Jesus is speaking to people about what it looks like to be kingdom people. And in that process, we have said that he wants us to aim for the ideal. And I put the ideal over here. He wants us to aim for this. And so when we talk today, talk today about divorce and marriage, I'm talking about ideals. And so here's what you need to know. We all, 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 all fall short of what I'm going to talk about today. 
whether you're actually divorced or not, if you're just human, you fall short of this ideal. Okay? And then we said, in this concept, we aim for the ideal, but then we live over here. We live in this broken world. We need to understand where we live, and then in the space between is where we grow. And so we've talked about aim, live, grow, that this provides us opportunity to grow toward the king's ideal. And we've said we cannot give up the king's ideal. We cannot give up the ideals of marriage and divorce in this case in particular. So this is what's happening here now. In the book of Matthew, and if you have your Bible, I invite you to turn there now. Matthew chapter 5. If you don't have a Bible with you, there's one near you. It's in the pew near you. We have two different kinds of Bibles. One looks relatively new, and one looks a little more used. Page 786 in the new, and page 937 in the old is where we're at. 786 and 937. And if you don't own a Bible, that Bible that you got from our pew, that's our gift to you this morning to take with you. Okay, 786, 937. Jesus is speaking now to a group of people on the, on the mountain, and they have come to him to listen, to figure out what does he want from us? What is his teaching? And at the end, in Matthew chapter 7, when Jesus finally finishes talking to them, the people are, as the text says, they're amazed at his teaching. They're amazed, they're stunned, they're overwhelmed at his authority to teach. And he says at the end, he says, if you, if you listen to these words and put them into practice, you're going to have a house, and here's why our house is here, you're going to have a house that's built on the rock. But if you just listen to these words and don't put them into practice, you're going to have a house built on the sand. And so we've talked about in this series that these words of Jesus, when he's laying out the ideal, that these words that he's laying out will help us, if not, not only that we listen, because the rock people and the sand people listen, Jesus says the difference between people who build their house on the rock and the sand is not listening and understanding and knowing, no, 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 but doing is the difference between the rock and the sand people. So, this morning, again, we're going to lay out the king's ideal for marriage and divorce and ask the question, what am I doing about that? So, Matthew chapter 5, beginning at verse 31. He's already given to the people listening to him his comments on anger and adultery, and now he's going further into the greatest human relationship we can find, and that is marriage and divorce. Verse 31, it has been said, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. Anyone, I'm going to pause here, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. What Jesus is doing is he's going back to the Old Testament to make a point for these people who are listening. Because the Pharisees, the teachers, you would know this if you've been here the last couple weeks, the teachers are taking the Old Testament law and applying it now. And Jesus is coming and saying, hey, I haven't come to throw that away, I've come to fulfill it. And he says, okay, you've heard this said, and so where is this that he's referring to? I, I want to show it to you up here. This is, there's a lot of words up here, but I want you to see it. What he's saying here in Deuteronomy chapter 24, these are the first four verses of Deuteronomy 24. I'm going to read these to you because as I read this to you, here's what I want you to think. This is the language. These are the words that the people who are sitting there are used to hearing. They did not have Matthew chapter 5 yet. 
They're experiencing Matthew chapter 5. They had Deuteronomy 24. This is what was spoken to them. This is what they grew up on. This is what their parents taught them, what their grandparents taught them. This is what their teachers of the law taught them. And so this is what Jesus is now taking and reformatting for them. And he, this is, so this is very familiar to them. This might be new to us. This is what Moses wrote to the people of Israel. Moses writing, if a man marries a woman who becomes displeasing to him because he finds something indecent about her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce, gives it to her, and sends her from his house, and if after she leaves his house she becomes the wife of another man, and her second husband dislikes her and writes her a certificate of divorce, gives it to her and sends her from his house, or if he dies, then her first husband who divorced her is not allowed to marry her again after she has been defiled. First thought is, run on sentence. Okay. Second, thought, second thought is, what is happening here in Deuteronomy 24 is that this becomes the primary context for how the, the Jews will think through divorce and remarriage. And I'd like to argue this, what they think about becomes our primary context too. Do you notice the assumption you notice the assumption that Jesus um, has in verse 31 that the Pharisees have. And that is, it's been said, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. The assumption is, you're going to divorce. And so, the question is, under what circumstances are divorce, is divorce allowed? Now, there's two different people here, right? There's two men. The first husband and the second. And so, here's what happens in Deuteronomy 24. The first husband looks at his wife and he says, I find something indecent about you. That word for indecent means uh, to be uncovered with shame or nakedness. This idea of adultery, some kind of marital unfaithfulness. So this is the first husband. He looks at his wife and he's like, you've been unfaithful to me. There's something indecent about you. That's the language of that. So I'm going to divorce you. So she goes off and she's divorced. And she comes to the second man. And notice now the second husband what? dislikes her. That's different, isn't it? This is not marital unfaithfulness. This word simply means, I don't like you. The second husband now, according to Deuteronomy 24, simply can run out of patience for the wife. Truly. The, the second husband now can uh, divorce the wife if the meal is spoiled. And so here's what ends up happening is that the Pharisees will take Deuteronomy 24 and they will argue about under what circumstances can you get divorced. The Hatfields say only if there's something indecent about them, only with adultery. The McCoys say, only, hey, you can get divorced for anything. In fact, it was the Shammai, literally, it was the Shammai teaching, the Shammai party in the Pharisees that said the only way, they restrict, the only way you can get divorced is with adultery. This was their line of teaching. And then the Hillel uh, arm of the Pharisees would say, you know what? Listen, this is a broken world. Things happen. Hot dogs get spoiled and burned on the grill. You don't like it. You come home. She blew the hot dog up. Whatever you need, man. You find someone else, Deuteronomy 24, verse 3, if you dislike her, go do your thing. And so what ends up happening is an entire culture 
begins to be formed on the basis of arguing between the Shammai and the Hillel, between the Hatfields and the McCoys, what are the conditions that are permissible for divorce? And over and over and over and over again, the conversation is always about, help me figure out, please, you religious people, help me know how I can get divorced right. And Jesus comes into the picture now in Matthew 5, and he says, verse 31, this is what you've you've heard this said. And then he says in verse 32 something very different, very different. Verse 32, but I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for marital unfaithfulness causes her to become an adulteress. And anyone who marries the divorced woman commits adultery. At, At first glance, it seems like Jesus is just kind of siding over here and saying it's only for marital unfaithfulness. But here's what Jesus is doing. He realizes this, that before the book of Deuteronomy comes, I don't know, the book of Genesis, right? Before the conversation about what are the conditions under which I can get a divorce comes the conversation, why get married in the first place? Before the conversation about how can I get out of marriage comes a conversation of why did I get into it in the first place? And what ends up happening in this context, in the Jewish context in which Jesus is talking, is the conversation only resides around how can I get out of it if it goes wrong, with the assumption it will go wrong. And you and I know that the more you talk and live in this world of what will go wrong and how can I get out if and what if she does that and what if he does that and what if this, then that is exactly what you and I start looking for. And Jesus comes back and he says, listen, you've heard that said, but I tell you, but I tell you, anyone who divorces his wife except for marital unfaithfulness causes her to become an adulteress. Now, what does he mean by that? Here's the idea. Divorce has never separated a union. It's like I told someone this morning, a stop sign has never actually stopped a car, has it? You can run right over that baby. You can run right through it. Stopping stop signs don't do anything except remind us of what our obligations are. Divorce doesn't actually separate a union in God's eyes. Because here's what happens. Check this out. This is going to be fun. This is a little science time, right? Mr. Rogers' neighborhood, moment of science. Two people come into the world. Hold on, wrong hands. Here comes the bride walking down the aisle, right? There she is. Here comes the groom coming down here. They are standing here now before me getting ready to be married. And they decide that they have come to this point in their life where they're coming together. They're going to be one, right? They're going to be one people. So they come together, and here's what they want to do. They want to come together with the yellow and the blue and, and kind of be one person. So they come together. It's exciting. Who's in the odds? Thank you very much. Appreciate that. Just need a little flame or something, and we'll be in business. They come together to be one. Now they have Moss. I don't, now they're one. Now, what was before two is now one. Now, this is exactly what happens in Genesis chapter two, right? This reason a man will leave his father and mother, be united to his wife, and they will become green. They'll become one flesh. And so, so here's what Andy Stanley says. I love the way he says about this. He says, 
You can't un-one what God has made one. If God makes you one, if God makes you one, you can't un-one that. There's no way in the world that now you will ever be able to take the yellow back or the blue back. You are now green. And the question revolves around this, but I want my yellow back because the blue isn't doing the right thing. And I want my blue back because the yellow's not doing the right thing. And Jesus comes into this context and he's like, no, 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 no. The only thing that separates this union in his eyes, in God's eyes, is this adultery. The only thing that separates the unity together of people is this, as we would argue, ongoing adultery. Even then, we see in the example of Hosea and Gomer even, that God's desire is always, always, always for reconciliation and unity together. And so here's what I want to say as we think about this. If this is true that you cannot un-one what God has made one, here's what I want to say for us. And here's what I think Jesus is saying for us this morning. And that is this. Remember why you're in before you look for an out. Here's what he says to the people on the, on the mount in Galilee. All you're doing is thinking about how to get out. You guys are arguing, the Shammai group, oh, you're straight down the line, straight and narrow, you can, here's how you can get out, here's how you can get out. Oh, you Hillel people, you're so wide open, you're more liberal, and yeah, you're just a seeker sensitive, whatever you want to call it. But all of y'all are just talking about how to get out. Let me ask you, why are you even in? This is where Jesus brings the people to. Remember why you're in before you start talking about how you're going to get out. Imagine if we were to do that. Imagine if we were to do that. Imagine if we were to come back and remember the moment when we got married, where the the two become one. Imagine what it would be like to be in in a culture, in a society, in which instead of the husband feeling like, man, she's just not doing her part. She's just not meeting my needs. And he's, he's just not making enough. And, and she's just not attentive to me. And, and, and he's just not sensitive enough. And, and she, all she cares about is the kids. And he, all he cares about is the job. And I know he's trying, and, but he's not, and, but she's not. But it, it, it. And what happens over time in any relationship is that distance begins to build between the yellow and the blue. And the thoughts begin to form like, not necessarily how can I get out in terms of a divorce, but how can I get further away at least in terms of my intimacy. And here's what Jesus says. You can't unwind what God has made one. Remember why in the world you're in this before you even talk about why you want to get out. For those of you who are dating right now and you're trying to think about who would I marry and you know, what would that look like to find my knight in shining armor and my princess in, I don't know, a horse. <laughs> I don't know what princesses do, but you know, what would it look like? What if you applied this simple principle to your dating life and you thought about, why, am I, why do I even want in? Why, why do I even want in in the first place? Why do I want in that game? You think it would change the kind of 
way that you approach dating? You think that would, that would change the way you see women, the way you see men? If you began to ask the question, not what kind of thing do I want to get out of that relationship or how might I get out if it doesn't work, but you began to ask the question, what am I bringing into this and where am I even going with this? Here's the thing, Ephesians 5 verses 21 to 33 is an incredible section of scripture that outlines for us this great picture of what marriage could be. And within that context, here's what we see about marriage. We see marriage being, yes, this unity of man and woman coming together, but we see marriage being more than that, more than just people being nice and living together for a lifetime. We see that the marriage union is a model for the watching world as to how Jesus relates to the church. We see Jesus as the groom, the church as the bride of Christ. And in Ephesians 5, Paul paints this picture, and here's the hard part, that your marriage, when you get poured together into one, and you bring your problems and your pain, and you pour it together into one, As you live through forgiveness and grace with one another, you are showing to the watching world what God's love is. So the question is, why am I in? And the answer is not so that I can be happy. The answer is not so that I can raise good kids. The answer is not so that I can be non-lonely anymore. That is not why I'm in. I'm in marriage. I'm in this union because biggest picture, it reflects to this world ultimately God's desire to love and know and draw us to him. And if what we're doing is asking the question, how can I get out? And looking to legitimize my distance that I'm creating with my spouse because, yeah, they did that wrong and they're not listening and they're impatient and if only, and, and there's abuse and there's this, and there's, eh, I don't know, and eh, but if that's all we're talking about, that's all we're going to become. And Jesus comes to this context in which we try to make it easy to separate. We try to make it easy to go our own ways. We try to make it easy to, to say, yeah, oh, you're right, boy, you're justified in getting out. Jesus lays this ideal down, this ideal that you know and I know we all fall short of. Before you get out, before you get out, remember why you're in. Before you get out, remember why you're even in in the first place. And imagine what that would be like in your marriage. Imagine what that would be like as a single Realizing that I'm going to go after not somebody who's like that, but I'm going to become somebody that Ephesians 5 talks about. I'm going to be that man who lovingly serves. I'm going to be that woman who honors and respects because that's what I'm in it for, for what God wants. Now, what can you do? One option for you. If you have never processed together as a couple or even as a single, the power and the truth of Ephesians chapter 5. Here's one practical encouragement for you. 
If you were in our premarital counseling at all, and many of you have been, it feels like all of you have gotten married in the last couple of weeks. Um, we've been going through quite a season of that, which is good. I, I love it. It's a lot of fun. It's an honor to be a part of that. But what we do with, with premarital counseling is um, we ask each couple to, to process and walk through Ephesians 5, 21 to 33. And if you've never done that, you've never walked through that with your spouse or even by yourself as a single, what it does is it lays out for you kind of a vision of why you're even getting in this in the first place. What your marriage can and should be. It is the king's ideal. So if you've not done that, here's what I encourage you to do. This week, this week, read it once a day. One observation per day on what you see as to what this text tells me about why I'm even in this in the first place, why I'm even here. Lay out for yourself, clarify, what is the ideal for my marriage right now? Don't be like the Hatfields and McCoys. It's too easy, it's too easy for us to find things to create distance in our relationships. It's too easy to fight about the secondary things. It's too easy to feel like, ah, she doesn't look like she used to, and he doesn't work hard enough, and she's not this, and he's not that. It's too easy. It's too easy. Before you think about how to get out, remember why you're even in in the first place. It's pretty good. Father, thank you that we have the chance, now hundreds of years later, to engage with texts like this, to be reminded of these truths that you have created this marriage union and that this assumption that we should have easy ways to break it off can be challenged. That you can lay out for us an ideal that, to be very honest, none of us, none of us, none of us will ever meet. And yet we have to hold it out here and aim for it. And with that aim, for some of us comes greater shame and guilt than for others. Some of us wish we would have done things differently. We wish we would have been better husbands or wives throughout the years. But this is where the space for growth comes. Where we can see the opportunity for grace and forgiveness within that space. So I pray for the marriages within this congregation, within this community, within the reach of this kind of message, that they could be renewed and strengthened with a purposefulness and a hope that there is something great that you have for each marriage. Not something unique that's very different for everybody, but the great focus of their marriage is that the watching world can see how two fallen people relate to one another through the context of grace and forgiveness and can see intimacy happen together. And this is your call for us to know you. So I pray for us as we enter marriage, think about leaving it or allowing distance to come in our relationship with our spouses, that we would remember why we're in it in the first place before we ever think about getting out. Father, we're grateful for your astounding, your astounding, your astounding grace. We're grateful for the amazing grace as we sing about so consistently that reaches right into the context of this area to grow and touches us and reminds us that even if we had it all lined up, we would still miss your ideal. So we work hard, we try, we strive, but at the end of the day, we pause and we're thankful for your amazing grace. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.